Well, we're talking about the Lord's last few hours on this planet, as recorded in John's Gospel. And in John, we've been reading, we read about one of his inner circle of followers named Judas, who betrayed him. And it was at a special meal, popularly known as the Last Supper, but it actually was Pesach, as we say in Hebrew, or a Passover Seder, a Passover meal. There the Lord was seated with his 12 followers, and Judas's heart was already being darkened in spite of the fact that the Lord himself fed Judas. This is what the host would do to designate the guest of honor. You talk about the grace of God. Judas the betrayer was particularly ministered to by the Lord, and yet in spite of it, he almost literally bit the very hand that fed him. And sadly, this betrayal is one of the things that characterized the very last hours in the Lord's life. Judas was not given one opportunity, but manifold opportunities to repent or to change his direction, and yet he refused. And the text we read about a few weeks ago used this expression, he went out into the night, which I mentioned was more than just a time indicator. It's a sad and tragic statement of Judas's movement away from the God of light and life with whom he had intimate access, and he went out into the darkness, into the night, where he literally came under the influence of the prince of darkness, that's Satan himself. Now, while all this is going on at this Passover meal, and the Lord is explaining, one of you uh, will betray me, can you imagine what's going through the minds of the others, the 11? I'm sure they have a flood of confusing thoughts and many unanswered questions. They were, for instance, I'm certain, wondering about this one. Would the Lord really have chosen one whom he knew would betray him? Wouldn't that cause you to be perplexed? Why, oh God, if you saw this coming, did you choose the betrayer to be in our midst? Or maybe even worse, they thought, what if he didn't see it coming? Maybe he didn't know Judas would take the action he was about to take. And if he, in fact, didn't know what kind of Messiah would he, in fact, be? So all this, I'll bet, is going through their minds. Did Jesus see it coming? Did he know what Judas was going to do? Well, the answer is yes, he absolutely did. He was not taken by surprise at all. We read some time ago, for instance, in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And now we're even told more about it under inspiration, John writes. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So can you see what might have been surprising to the eleven and is perhaps to this day to us? Did not take the Lord, who is omniscient, did not take him by surprise at all. He knew Judas would betray him, which leads to the question, why then did he, the Lord, in full knowledge, why did he choose Judas? Why did he specifically choose one whom he knew would betray him? Why did the Lord 
choose Judas knowing he would play a very key and significant role in sending the Lord himself to the cross? Well, the question itself contains the answer. Ironically, this is the case. The Lord, in fact, did choose one deliberately who would be instrumental in sending him to the cross because it was for this purpose, the cross, that the Lord came. Jesus, the Son of God, was sent by the Father to be impaled on a cross for our sins. That's, in fact, why he came. This was the very mission of Jesus. He came for the cross, knowing of its necessity, knowing that if any could possibly be redeemed, it would have to come through the cross and it would take the instrumentality of one Judas, a betrayer, in order to effectuate all the events leading up to the cross. So then, that with a little bit of introduction, we continue now where we left off. We're in John chapter 13, just two verses for tonight, but there's a lot in them. John 13, beginning in verse 31. Look what it says. Therefore, in light of everything we've said, therefore, when he, the he is Judas, had gone out, he left the Passover dinner, the last supper, he went out into the night. Therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man. And I'd like to camp out on that phrase just for a moment, if you don't mind. The son of man in Hebrew, ben ha'adam. That means the son of man. It's a title used of the Lord more often than any other in the New Testament. In fact, 88 times in the New Testament, we read this particular phrase used in association with the Lord, Son of Man. 12 of those 88 times take place in the Gospel of John that we've been studying for so long. In fact, this occurrence, this usage of the phrase Son of Man, this is the last one we will read about. And the title, the Son of Man, it's not so mysterious. It's a reference from a prophecy about the coming Messiah uttered way back in the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read it to you. Daniel speaking. I kept looking in the night visions, he said. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, you see the phrase, was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And that's where the phrase used with reference to the Lord, Son of Man, comes from. And the Lord accepted it, in fact, used it of himself more often than any other title. And in so doing, he was declaring, I am the Messiah, whom Daniel saw coming, not in his day, but in a future day. So Daniel's messianic prophecy is fulfilled in the Jesus we're reading about here in John's Gospel. But why is it that the Son of God, such he is, why is it that the Son of God became the Son of Man? I mean, in fact, this title, Son of Man, strongly indicates that Jesus, who from eternity past was indeed the Son of Man, came as a man. Jesus, God, 
in the form of man. The son of God is the son of man. It's hard to hold those two truths in tension, but they're both true. But why is it? I ask that the son of man, the son of God became the son of man. It's for this reason. Gracious and merciful God, the ancient of days, the father, the creator of all, intended from before time to die in our place for our sin. But there's a problem with all that. God cannot die. He is an eternal, self-sustained, necessary being. His existence is not contingent on anything else. God cannot die. So how is he going to pull this off? Well, God graciously took on flesh, mortality, the likes of which we walk around in, and thus subjected himself in the form of Jesus the Son to the throes of life and even the reality of death. And so we read in verse 31, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And I asked myself the question, how could, how could the Son and the Father be glorified in the cross? Think about this. They're having a Passover meal, and things are looking good, and the disciples have no idea what's coming, and the Lord reveals, one of you here will betray me. And that just changed things. It was a celebratory time, and now it makes it pretty dark and dismal, quite intense and heavy was the Passover Seder. But now we're moved from this very, very heavy oppressive scene to one of hopefulness and uh, wonder and even glory. The Lord here is speaking of glory, not only his, but the glory of the Father. And I just wonder how, how in the world could there be glory in the cross? How could, how could the Lord see glory in it? I mean, Judas goes out into the night there to be overtaken by the prince of darkness willingly. And Jesus sees himself and the Father, even in the midst of all this, to be glorified. What Judas is about to do, and I don't understand how. How could Jesus see glory in, of all things, the cross? I mean, there doesn't seem to be glory in it, frankly, at all. In fact, the cross represents suffering, not glory. It represents humiliation. It represents mockery and death. Where is the glory in the cross? And how could the Lord see glory in it? And frankly, many through the ages and down to our day do not see glory in the cross. Do you? Do you see the glory in the cross? Many over the years have not. And I could understand this, you see, because the cross, after all, is an instrument of death. In fact, the cross was the ancient equivalent of this. It's a form of capital punishment. The cross, in fact, was the ancient equivalent of an electric chair, only worse. The purpose of the electric chair is to see to the passing of the accused as painlessly, humanely, and quickly as possible. Death by crucifixion had the opposite effect. It was to elongate the agony and humiliation of the victim impaled on the cross. And yet in that day, the cross was no different than the electric chair. Could you imagine wearing around your neck instead of a cross, a symbol of the electric chair? And that's why I ask, where is the glory in that? 
How could the Lord find glory in the cross? The cross was not only a torturous form of capital punishment, it was also a principal means of shame and humiliation of the victim. So shameful was crucifixion, in fact, that except in rare and extreme cases, one who is a Roman citizen, regardless of the crime, he or she was accused of, was spared the indignity of death by crucifixion. If you were a Roman citizen, one of your rights as a Roman citizen is that you could be executed a different way. You would not be subject to the same shame and humiliation of the cross. Even Cicero himself, a Roman statesman and orator and philosopher, he was born in 106 BC, Cicero, he said this, a little complicated, but I think you'll get the thrust. Cicero said, even, he's speaking to his fellow Roman citizens, even if we are threatened with death, we may die free men, but the executioner, the veiling of the head, and the very words, cross, should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but the liability to them, the expectation, nay, the mere mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. So uh, death by crucifixion was unworthy of a Roman citizen. And yet our own Lord Jesus took to the cross and saw glory in it. I don't get it. Julius Caesar, one of the key and principal Roman emperors was considered to be quite brutal. You may know something of Julius Caesar. And yet he himself, this very brutal dictatorial emperor, was considered in some cases to be merciful when, after conquering enemies, he offered them the opportunity to have their throats slit prior to being hung on a cross and thus to be spared the elongated suffering which was part and parcel of the cross. And yet the Lord saw glory in the cross. Folks, crucifixion was designed to do more than merely kill a man. Its purpose was to humiliate the man. There were, in fact, more efficient means of execution. You could cut off somebody's head and be done with it real quick. You could stone somebody. The Romans, they didn't come up with the idea of the cross. The Persians did. But the Romans perfected it and made it long, elongated. The Romans chose this means of dying on purpose as a deterrent to opposing Rome. They wanted to elongate the suffering and humiliation, shame of the one hanging on the cross, and yet the Lord Jesus <laughs> saw glory in it. I don't get it. Did you know the very word crucify centuries ago was considered to be a cuss word, a vulgar word, which would not be pronounced by dignified and cultured people? In fact, in one ancient document which has been found, a Roman prostitute, I know you want to know about Roman prostitutes, so you came to the right place. A Roman prostitute said to a dissatisfied customer, go get yourself crucified. That was the most lewd and profane thing she can impose upon uh, this unsatisfied customer. <laughs> and yet the Lord Jesus said, with reference to his own crucifixion, now is the Son of Man glorified. How? I want to show you something. Take a look at this. It's very odd. I'll explain it to you. It's a depiction of a man with a donkey's head being crucified. 
what you're looking at is actually a piece of ancient Roman graffiti dating from approximately A.D. 200. It was scratched on a plaster wall in the room of a home in ancient Rome. It is on purpose an insulting depiction of this Jesus who hung on the cross. And you can see in this image to the left the depiction of a young man hands aloft in a position of worship. He is a Christian worshiping his Christ, his Messiah, who suffered and died on the cross. And there are Greek words, hard to make out, but they're on the bottom of this ancient Roman graffiti. And these are the words, listen, Alex Zamenos, that means Alex. Alex Zamenos worships his God. It was an insulting mockery of a Christian who would worship someone as God, as Savior, who was subjected to the most humiliating and excruciating form of capital punishment devised by man. So I ask again, where is the glory in that cross? And here I think is the answer, finally. One lone Jewish son of man, son of God, in dying on the cross, did more to restore man's lost harmony with God than the combined wisdom and philosophy and efforts and religions of all of humankind. And thus, in the words of a wonderful hymn writer, in the cross of Christ, I glory towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light and sacred story gathers round its head sublime. Folks, without the cross, there would be no salvation. Without the cross, no resurrection. Without the cross, absolutely no hope of eternal life. And yet, isn't this an unusual symbol and insignia of our distinct Christian Faith, a cross. Why such an insignia? Well, here's the answer. The cross without words tells us that the only way to be reconciled to holy God is for someone to die in our place for our sin. Our sin has put us, put us at odds with God, who's unapproachably holy. And in order to be reconciled to him, death was required. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And sure enough, when you think of the cross, think of dying of one on it, the only one who, by the way, who could die in our place? Only Jesus is qualified. On the cross was the death, you see, of the sinless Son of God who became Son of Man. In the cross... Man, prideful man, is faced with the hard reality that he cannot come to God by human achievement. God's son had to die upon it in order to reconcile us to God. The cross is absolutely the death of human merit and human achievement as the supposed way to God. The cross represents not man's virtue, but God's mercy and grace. There's glory 
Yes, in the cross, because all of the attributes of God, if you think about it, are put on full display on the cross. On the cross, we see that God is just. There must be a penalty for sin. And on the cross, we see that God is intensely loving for the Son of Man paid the penalty for sin in our place. There's glory indeed in the cross. It depicts God's holiness and it depicts God's justice. And the cross, even without a word, puts on display God's mercy and grace. Yeah, there's plenty of glory in the cross. It proclaims God to be a holy God who could not pass over sin and it proclaims God to be a loving God who did not want the death of the sinner. So what Satan, through his instrumentality, Judas meant for evil, God used for his glory and for our good. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, a perplexing thing. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What did Paul mean when he said the message of the cross is foolishness. Let me attempt an answer. I think he meant to say a crucified savior is a contradiction in terms. A savior is supposed to lead us in triumph and be victor. A crucified savior, a crucified deliverer is counterintuitive. Doesn't Look, you could have one or the other. You could have a savior without the cross. You could have a cross without the savior. But when you bring the two together, it just seems like foolishness. I'll tell you what would make sense. A savior and a crown, not a savior and a cross. So what do we make of this? Well, people who think that way don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Uh, there will be the Savior and a crown, but before that happened, there must be the Savior and the cross first. First his humiliation, and then his exaltation. First he came as the sacrificial lamb of God. He will come again as the lion of Judah. If you recognize rightly his first coming, you're living in hopeful anticipation of his second coming. If you miss his first coming, you're in trouble with reference to his second coming. The cross indeed makes sense if you see both the hopelessness of humankind and the holiness of God. So though the cross is indeed foolishness to those who are perishing, it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. And one more thing as we sort of wind up. The cross would be foolishness if the cross had the last word, but it does not. Resurrection is what has the last word. And so we read in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. Now get this, and will glorify him, that's Jesus. The Father will glorify him, Jesus, when? Immediately. Folks, immediately after his excruciating death on the cross, the father glorified his son by raising him up from death to life. And so the death of Jesus on the cross may in fact have seemed like defeat, but it was in reality the means by which lost sinners such as you and I could be saved. And it was followed 
immediately by the resurrection and ascension to glory forevermore. The Lord Jesus will be glorified as Lord of lords and King of kings, but the Father is not waiting on that to happen. Immediately, the cross did not have the last word. Up from the grave, he arose, you say. Immediately, the Father glorified the Son, vindicated him by raising him up from death. In fact, in the two verses under our consideration tonight, if you look a little more closely at them, you will see that the Lord makes reference to a form of the word glory five times. Review this with me, beginning again in verse 31. Look, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. That's number one. And God is glorified. Second occurrence of the word. In him, if God is glorified, third time, in him, God will also glorify, that's the fourth time, him in himself, and the fifth time, and will glorify him immediately. Folks, when you see uh, a repetition of a word five times in two verses, you need to camp out on that. Uh, the Lord is not wasting his breath. There is glory in the cross because of what it accomplished for undeserving ones like you and I. And there's glory in the cross, because it led to the immediate resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he is seated now at the right hand of the Father in glory. Oh, there's much glory in the crucifixion, and there's much glory in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Greek, the word for glory is doxa, doxa. D-O-X-A, from which we get our word doxology. You've heard about it. Doxology is a, uh, oftentimes, musical expression of praise and glory to God. Well, there is a doxology I'll bet many of you, most of you are familiar with. We don't sing it too much anymore, but I think it would be fitting for us to do so tonight as we prepare to take leave of one another. So, could I ask you to stand to your feet? And to the best of your ability, and I'll do mine too, let's sing this wonderful doxology together. Listen, Jesus is to be praised as Lord and Savior. And if these words, which though they may emanate from your mouth, are really not on your heart, I wish you would, as we depart, um, meet with us in the Connection Center so we could talk to you more about the work of Jesus Christ, which he performed on your particular behalf, so that you could leave here tonight, not just singing these words mechanically, but as a reflection of what's deep on your heart. Let's sing it together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you, folks. Go out, glorify the risen Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight.